In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 17. We'll be starting in verse 22, and uh, this is about Paul's journey. Leslie, would you please open us with prayer? Thank you, Father, for this time we have together and for the learning of your word. Help us to learn more and to discern your will, not only for our lives, but as we affect the lives of others, for your name's sake, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And greetings, Mark. It looks like we're on part 35 of our adventure through Acts. Of late in our look at Acts, Paul and Silas and Luke have crossed over from uh, present-day Turkey into Macedonia, or the northern part of Greece uh, in present day. And Paul has seen a really good success at Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then Berea. But the leaders of the synagogue in Thessalonica are uh, just brutal, and they have uh, kind of driven him out of town there. Then they followed him to Berea. And so they got him out of town and put him en route to Athens. And so he's gone on to Athens. He's left Silas behind there at Thessalonica and Luke probably still at Philippi developing the new Christians in those areas. And he's kind of waiting for them. Anyway, he's in Athens and he is now about to make an address to the people who stand around the Areopagus or Mars Hill just waiting to hear somebody new come into town, bringing some new idea into town. So he's now going to indulge them in their favorite pastime. So let's begin by reading verses 22 through 31 of Acts 17, please. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What, therefore, you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which 
he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Great. Thank you very much, Leslie. So modern scholars are all over the map when it comes to looking at this speech that Paul made. Some claim there's no way he could have made it. Others claim, oh yeah, this is definitely Paul. Uh, A lot of them notice that this is not the same kind of speech you would give in a synagogue. This is a speech geared for cultured pagans from one who is very familiar with the Greek language and culture. And he addressed them accordingly. He, he begins by telling them that they are uncommonly religious. Now, this is not uh, necessarily flattery like we might read it in English. In fact, flattery was expressly forbidden in the Areopagus. They didn't want uh, flattery. They wanted the core ideas. They didn't want them sugar-coated or anything. He may have been saying you are exceptionally superstitious. He, it might have been the sense of what he was saying. And then he mentions then that he saw an altar bearing the inscription to the unknown God. And again, a lot of speculation on this. Archaeology has found several possibilities of this. The literal Greek probably says to an unknown God instead of to the unknown God. Likely possibilities are that this was a war trophy that was carried in from a conquered land where they worshipped a different deity and the name of the deity had been forgotten. Or they've uncovered several of these altars in Athens that apparently got so worn from age that the original inscription could not be read. And then hundreds of years later, a new inscription would be put on, something like what Paul read, to an unknown god. They knew this was an altar to a god, but they didn't know which god it was originally made to. Or another possibility is just that they didn't want to miss any god of the pantheon, so somebody made from scratch an altar to some god that they did not know. That's what I was taught growing up, but tend to think it's probably one of the uh, the first two options. But e- either way, Paul is going to grab this real artifact there in Athens as an opportunity to open up a discussion about the one true God. And so he begins, as does the Bible, with creation. And this is uh, the same way today that we must deal with those who don't know God or the Bible you have to start with the creation, the universe, science, uh, true science, as it were, the irreducible complexity of the universe and so on. As, as I, I may have mentioned, when I lived in Phoenix uh, years ago, I went to a new dentist and the hygienist was talking about the unbelievable intricacy of the uh, human gum tissue and how no other animal had anything like it, and I asked her if that had evolved by random chance over billions of years from mutations, and there's a long silence, and she finally said, well, I guess so. I just never really thought about it before. (laughs) 
So I let that sink in with her there for a while, and hopefully maybe she rethought things later. I don't know. But uh, anyway, this Paul is starting just as you would with someone who had no familiarity with the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, uh, etc. He mentions also that this Lord of heaven and earth does not reside in temples made with hands. Now this is quite damaging to our dispensational and Zionist friends who believe that another physical temple is still waiting to be built in Palestine. Of course, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, we've seen already in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the story of the building of the new temple, the third temple that our dispensational friends are still waiting to to build. Physically, it was built spiritually, and the book of Acts is the record of its construction. And so Paul's very consistent by saying that this God does not reside in temples made with hands. It is a spiritual temple that he's after. And he acknowledges the the God of Israel as the giver of life, breath, and everything. Of course, this is the summation of our culture war today. You know, why do people accept the Federal Reserve without question? Well, it's because they no longer view God as the giver of life, breath, and everything. They look to government and big business as the giver of life, breath, and everything good, the giver of all good gifts. It is pure idolatry, perhaps uh, different in details from the Greek idolatry that Paul's addressing, but at its root cause, it is the same thing. Verse 26 can be interpreted a couple of different ways. It sounds like it may be alluding to Adam. He made from one man, but it's more likely in the the literal Greek translation say he's made of one blood, all nations of men, talking about just more generally the unity of the human race going back to one common creator and seasons and boundaries of their uh, dwelling places, which we have the record of, of course, after the Tower of Babel, where they they are scattered to different uh, parts of the globe uh, back then. Back in verse 25, I mean, he's t- he's he's contrasting the pagan idea of having to serve gods because they really need it to the fact that because God is the giver of good things, he wants a relationship with a covenant people, not that he needs them or needs a a temple or a fancy organ or anything that could be made with man's hands. He doesn't need any of that stuff in contrast to the Greeks' view of uh, why man served the gods. The purpose of man being created Paul reveals in verse 27 is that they might seek God. And, of course, the Gentile nations had really to grope in darkness without the revealed scriptures for many generations. And, again, it's an exciting thing that within the last 100 years or so before Paul spoke that these other nations who had access to synagogue communities could join to them and be taught 
about the true God from the Hebrew Scriptures. Without those Scriptures, it's like uh, groping in the darkness. But many in the Greek world were seeking the true divine nature because that, that's why these synagogues are packed with people who are not national Judeans. And in verse 28, he's talking about, again, that all good gifts come from the true God. And he quotes a Greek poet to back this up because he is, again, speaking to a Greek audience here. And then he draws conclusion that since we are the offspring of God, then we ought not to think that the divine nature is an engraving of human art and design made in whatever media you choose, gold or silver or stone. He had said back at 27 that he is not far from each one of us. And, and of course, this also stands in great contrast to our poor, misguided, dispensational friends who think that he left and went you know, far away and we have to wait for him to come back. And they're trying to read everything so uh, literally. But Paul is explaining the true spiritual realm, that it is, it is not something that is far away from us in any measurable dimension, but is, is right here with us. It's just a matter of whether we are joined to him in the spiritual realm in a covenant relationship or not which determines the effect of him being nearby or not, whether that is an important factor or not. He's going to then explain back in verse 30, God overlooked times of ignorance before, because again, he focused on the Judean nation Israel, and he looked past this in the other nations, but now he has commanded all people everywhere to change direction or repent is the word we use usually just in a religious sense he is going to judge the world on a set day in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has provided a pledge to all by raising him from the dead so as we'll see when he gets down to Corinth a little bit later this judgment that is imminent in Paul's day, is not something limited to Palestine. It is a worldwide judgment. And in particular, the, uh, the Judeans in Corinth have, uh, have brought a heaping headful of that judgment on themselves, uh, just as a preview of where we're trying to get to in chapter 18. All right, other thoughts or comments here on Paul's speech thus far? Great speech. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the what well, where the results were somewhat indifferent uh, when Paul originally gave this, I'm told that now there is a plaque with the full text of this of this uh, passage of Acts there in Athens at the foot of Mars Hill uh, to this day. So subsequent generations valued Paul's speech more than the audience that day did apparently you too mark will be more appreciated in future times oh well <laughs> well that remains to be <laughs> right. verse 31 says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world 
in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Judgment Day, right? Yes. And uh, again, we've we've always been taught that this is still way out in the future, and yet when we look at the book of Daniel and other Hebrew prophets, this judgment that all the prophets spoke about, and that I believe personally that Paul was speaking about, was something that was to happen in the last days of physical Israel. Even though it does still apply to us today just as much as if we could say it was in the future, when we die, we, we're out of time and space. I mean, we're, we're out of that realm. And, uh, you know, time is not relevant to us anymore. So this judgment that we've always been told is future, I mean, it's future for us until we die, but it was, it was also very much, and this is so important, it was an imminent event coming within that generation that was living at that time. And we see that imminency and that passion to reach all of these people before it was too late for them because it was coming on them in their generation. Mark, um, I think this is a really important point that Leslie's raised here. If we were in a dispensational church being lectured by someone from a Schofield Bible, the only verse that would really be taken seriously and given, given much credence would be verse 31. And they would say this does point to the future return of Christ when we'll all face our maker. That would be the way it would be taught. And they would pretty much ignore the rest of these these uh, <laughs> statements Paul made. Uh, isn't isn't that really true? Yeah, that's that's my experience in in the dispensational church that they can go through a reading like this and come out with only one thought out of it, and that is that Jesus is going to return sometime, and we better be waiting for that. Yeah, and and it's not that mentality is not limited to just the dispensationalists because the Protestant creeds since 1500 have locked in this idea of a still future bodily resurrection and judgment day. So it has become pervasive in all Protestant groups as well as some Catholic groups, but they seem to be more blind than most. Is, is this because they ignored the death of the human being as his final outcome and, and want to view the entire world as a living entity all at one time when Jesus returns as though everyone's going to be alive then? It, or is, this, is this the way they think about this? Or Because yes. it's, uh, what you said is very obvious that uh, judgment day for every man is the moment he dies, period. Yes, and through the countless generations that have gone by in the past who did not witness Christ's return, each one of those mortal souls met his maker Yes, uh, at, at, one ver at one moment. Absolutely. But the dispensational problem goes back to their totally misguided, super-literal reading of the book of Genesis and the account of the Garden of Eden, 
where they look at where Adam and Eve are told, in the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And, of course, the day that they ate, did they physically die? (laughs) No, but the dispensationalist thinks it's talking about physical death. And so the dispensationalist believes that, well, he began to die physically there. He had been created immortal, and he began to die on that day that God said he would die. And so they interpret the death that God threatened them with as physical death. And so to them, the gospel is the cure for physical death. But that's not what the gospel is about. That's not the death that Adam and Eve incurred in the garden. It was covenantal death. It was separation from God, which meant they were spiritually dead. They were expelled from the garden instantly, and uh, they were cut off from God. The Garden of Eden is a picture of this temple, spiritual temple, that the gospel is building. It is a restoration of the Garden of Eden. It is a reversal of the punishment inflicted on Adam and Eve when they were expelled from the Garden. Now, when we trust that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and we are baptized, we are brought into the spiritual temple and we are rejoined with him spiritually. So, this complete confusion in dispensational circles goes back to Genesis, the bookend of Revelation, and they're totally confused there at the beginning, and they stay confused all the way through to the end. Till Judgment Day. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, presumably, if, if we can see this clearly, and it just seems so consistent, I mean, just these little things of Paul saying, he is not far from any one of us. I mean, if he's billions of years beyond the furthest galaxy out there waiting to come back physically in a physical form. You know, Paul was really confused when he gave this speech. <laughs> but if, if our interpretation is biblically accurate, that God is worried about spiritual death and spiritual separation, and he wants everyone to be joined to him spiritually, you know, he's right here and you can access him very quickly. You don't have to wait thousands of years to access, to be in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Hooray. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is so much more powerful. It's not a tissue issue, as one (laughs) guy said. It's not about biological resurrection of bones and flesh out of the dirt or the sea. You know, it's that's not it at all. It's it's about eternal life by being spiritually joined to Christ as his part of his spiritual body and making him the spiritual head of your life. All right. Well, shall we move on here to uh, verses 32 through 34, please? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, 
the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right, great, thank you. So, Paul basically is Jesus Christ is mentioned in the, what we call verse 31 of his speech right there at the end. This man who has been raised from the dead. This uh, idea of the resurrection of the dead really didn't set well with these Greek philosopher types. Some of them made fun of it. Others said, we want to hear more about this. And, of course, Jesus experienced a complete resurrection, a physical and spiritual resurrection, just as he physically healed people and physically raised people from the dead. He himself was also physically resurrected. And again, the the Protestant churches think that's the prototype of all of our resurrection. But those physical healings and resurrections were evidence of the spiritual resurrection and healing that was the true message of the gospel. And uh, we'll see this more as we get into Paul's trials here a little later in the book of Acts, that, that Paul's understanding of the resurrection from the Hebrew scriptures, particularly Ezekiel 37, the vision of the dry bones, apparently was totally different than that of the Pharisees, and it offended them as well. And they they got mad and upset, just like these guys did on the Areopagus, uh, at this idea of the resurrection uh, of the dead. Paul's concept of resurrection differed from the Pharisees, and it differed from the Greeks. But anyway, Paul did pick up a few people who wanted to learn more about this. They, they stuck to him and believed and uh, learned what they could. We don't know much about the woman uh, mentioned here. Some think she must have been a visitor in town who just was up there. She's not mentioned anywhere in any other record as far as I know. Dionysius has all kinds of traditions uh, associated with him, but none of them can really be uh, confirmed. Uh, legend says that he became the first uh, bishop of Athens. And, and he may have been, but we don't know any of this for certain. Again, to me, it is uh, very interesting that Athens does have a synagogue, and yet Paul doesn't stay there. He doesn't, he doesn't create a core of believers to go out and teach uh, the surrounding area like he's done in other major cities. Athens was in the province of Achaia, but Paul will later describe a family in Corinth as the first fruits of Achaia in uh, 1 Corinthians 16. So Paul didn't really consider these limited results in Athens to be any fruit of consequence. And, of course, modern-day scholars like to second-guess what Paul did wrong, you know, in Athens. <laughs> or he changed his methods after he left Athens because he failed so badly there. But 
I don't see any of that uh, at all. This was not where God's truth had been working in the years before to build a core group who would uh, be ready to embrace the gospel with excitement and passion like we see in all of the other uh, synagogue cities. Athens was the Wall Street of Greece, would you uh, say? Or the well, New no, York, the I would New York say of Greece? Corinth is more like the New York because it, it was on a strategic uh, waterway, and New York only became the most strategic city in America after the Erie Canal allowed you to connect by water from New York all the way to Chicago, all the way to St. Joseph, Missouri. You could go by water. And up prior to that time, you know, Philadelphia was way more important than New York. But Corinth was similarly on a strategic place for shipping, just like New York became. So it's very parallel. Athens, I would say, is not. It was. It's like the cultural center. And I don't know if we have a cultural center uh, to compare to. <laughs> we have some cultural centers of depravity, but... I'm not sure we have a cultural center, really, that would be equivalent to uh, to Athens. I'm sure Athens did have some financial clout, but it was not nearly as strategic a center of commerce as Corinth. Maybe it was the Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, Corinth is actually also the capital of the province of Achaia at this time, Julius Caesar rebuilt it. It had been completely leveled in 146 B.C. for revolting against Rome. And then Julius Caesar uh, rebuilt it from scratch in 27 B.C. And it uh, rebounded dramatically and and became the, the capital of Achaia as far as Roman administration was concerned. It is a context for, uh, you know, for, for what's going on here. So, uh, good questions. All right, this is probably a good spot to end our study for today.